Hello, and welcome to Executive Insider. My name is JT O'Donnell, and I'm the founder and CEO of Work It Daily, the number one online career growth club. I'm helping 1 million people grow their careers, and that includes executives just like you. I coach a community of executives inside Work It Daily, where we talk about what it means to be an executive, how we can build our executive networks, and how we can take our executive careers to the next level. So get ready. We're about to share content only an executive insider can bring to the table. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Executive Insider. This is the show that teaches you everything you need to know to advance your career as an executive. And today I am so lucky to have Wendy Knight joining us. She is a specialist when it comes to insurance and business risk. She wrote an incredible article that's gotten a lot of traction over on the Work It Daily site on the subject. And we're going to grill her today about all of the things that she discussed in this because it's a very, very timely topic. Hey, Wendy. Hey, how are you, JT? I'm doing okay in these crazy times. (laughs) This is quite a timely topic, so thank you for coming on the show. But let's kick this off. I didn't want to give you an intro. I really wanted you to share your own story. Walk us through how you became an executive with this particular area of expertise. Well, I wanted to be a banker. As an English major graduating from college, every banker back in the day said, no, you can't count. You can read, but you can't count. (laughs) So I landed on a job that put me on Wall Street, but it was in insurance. And I really didn't want to be in insurance, but I had the opportunity to learn all about banking and financial institution. And what I found was I loved insurance because I got to know the industry, every industry that I worked in better than the industry themselves. And it really gave me a broad depth of knowledge. So I just loved being in insurance. I've been an insurance executive now for years. I've been in the business well over 30 years. And I've covered industries from agriculture and healthcare to oil and gas, transportation, financial institutions, and even septic tank cleaners. And yes, we insurance people are known as Jen but I like to think of myself as an environmental engineer. (laughs) That's a great way to look at it. Because I'm going to be honest, not too many people think insurance when they're defining their career. So it is sort of a, a situation where you fell into it, but fell in love with it. Talk to me a little bit about this being able to go deep in a lot of different subjects. Why do you have to learn so much about each industry in order to be effective in this career? Well, what's really fascinating and what I love about insurance is that in order to place an insurance risk, and I started on the insurance company side. So in order to place or evaluate a risk, you had to understand what that business did. So for banking, you had to understand how they calculate their investments and what their risk profile for investments are. For healthcare, you had to understand the clinical pathways that they set up for different disease sets. So you really had to know that business so you could price, whether it be a director's and officer's policy or a medical malpractice policy, appropriately for the risk that that particular insured gave. One of the benefits that I got is that I was able to serve across the spectrum in insurance. Mm. So I started out on the carrier side, moved over to the broker and played the middleman. So I really had to learn how to balance the relationships between insurance companies and the clients. And then at the end, ended up being a client of a large healthcare system. So got to be the decision maker on the other end. Yeah. I mean, being able to sit on all three sides of that, talk about perspective. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. So obviously this pandemic, you've been on all those sides, insurance risk. This is something that's hitting executives in ways. I mean, they just never dreamed 
it would be like this. So when you're navigating the pandemic, what are some of the things that you just coming from this natural side of, hey, you've seen the risk and the challenges, what do you want them to think about? Or what should they be thinking about? The first thing is planning. You can never plan and practice enough. And this is something that I have learned over the years and I've coached many, many clients on is no matter how outrageous the scenario might be, consider it because you never know what you're going to face. And I'll give you a great example of that. Wimbledon, and I'm sure many have already heard this story, but for 17 years, the event planners at Wimbledon purchased pandemic insurance. 17 years, paid $2 million per year. This year, they actually cashed in on that policy, $141 million. So that's a great return on your investment and a little bit of paranoia. I did not hear that story. And that is incredible. So it's really heartening for those of us in insurance to say, you can never be so extreme, but to really just take that opportunity to take a step back, look at what you have, look at what keeps you up at night and figure out how you address it. You can't always insure it, but you can address it. And that's what I bring to the table is helping people understand what's insurable, what's not insurable, and what's a good balance of cost. Because at the end of the day, it's all about the balance sheet. You know, and I think that would really help our listeners. Can you describe a time where you've actually had to put in place one of these plans or know someone who did like Wimbledon was a a cool example, but like, how does that break down? And what do you learn when you go through a process like that? I'll give you a couple of examples that I've personally experienced as a client. So the first one was starting with uh, cyber, convincing your IT and your IT security person that there really are cyber risks in healthcare and there's the potential for failure is a challenge. At one of my previous employers, we started doing tabletop exercises and they started out as one hour tabletop exercises and really didn't gain a lot out of it. So we sat down with a core group of disaster contingency planning people And we said, okay, we're going to do a scenario that probably won't happen, but we're going to expand it out over seven days. My job was to project what the actual insured cost would be. Their job was to make it a realistic exercise. So we started on a Monday, Monday morning. No one had keys to the plan. So we start on a Monday. We all get a call. There were about 40 of us on this task force. We had to work through each day a different set of new emerging risks and exposures. And at the end of Friday, we failed miserably and we found a lot of disconnects in our process. So at the beginning of the function, we all thought it's about a $3 million episode. It was well over $40 million by the time we got done. That prepared us for a small incident that occurred that because of what we did in that planning and activity, we were able to catch and resolve the issue on day one and not even spend $15,000. That's crazy. And so a little off topic question, but I got to ask who generally owns this idea or process and gets the buy-in? When you looked at that, like you said, you were doing the tabletops, it wasn't working. Who owns it and gets everyone to that point? The challenge is everybody has to own it. There can't be a single owner. You have executive sponsors. So it's many times the job of the risk manager or the enterprise risk group Mm -hmm. to convince that executive sponsor 
that at the end of the day, this is going to save reputation, first and foremost, and dollars, second. It's amazing how when you start with the reputation discussion, mm -hmm. the dollars become easier to digest because reputation is that business. It is that health system. It is that agriculture company. So when you approach it from a reputational standpoint, everybody starts to buy in. It's more personal too. It's very right? personal. You're hitting more of that personal element. So they're paying attention. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. All right. So as a risk manager and an insurance person and a healthcare expert, literally you have all three of those areas. How do you help and manage people during a crisis? How, how do you leverage all three of those pieces? First piece is calm. Having gone through and worked through crises, hurricanes, the polar vortex here on the East Coast, it's bringing the calm. We talked about the commander dynamic where you really do have a very definitive approach that you bring to the table. So being organized, being empathetic and deliberate, but constantly moving it forward. And the biggest challenge when you coach any group or any business through these type of episodes like the pandemic is positive piece. Yes, we had a setback. Yes, we had to have all of our employees work from home. What are some of the benefits of employees working from home? Are they happier? Well, actually, yeah. Have we looked at productivity? Yes, they are more productive. We looked at our real estate costs. Yes, our operating costs have gone down. So it starts to become a more positive, energizing exercise when you focus on what you can control and what you can make turn into an opportunity. It's funny you say that because I think you hear this and you think, oh, she must have to think really negatively, right? But I'm hearing a much more neutral mindset. You're just mm -hmm. looking at the facts for what they are and let's do what we can with them as opposed to dwelling on the negativity. Does that sound right? Absolutely, JT. And one of the challenges that we insurance people have brought on ourselves is the perspective that we're only there for disasters and we do have that negative perspective. So we have to change our approach and find ways to move forward. You can't move forward with the perspective of, oh my God, this happened, now what? You have to move forward saying, this could have been worse and here's how it could have been worse. What can we build upon to use this going forward? Mm -hmm. So it's really just glasses half empty, glasses half full. I have learned over the decades that the half full glass works much better. So the glass half full, and this wasn't a question, this is a curveball to you, but do you think it's just all the experience that you've had that has gotten you to this level set? Because I think you're right. You come into the situation, they need you to be a commander, but they need to feel composure from you and that everything's going to be okay. And I can't imagine that you can fake that. That has to be pretty sincere. So how do you think you got to that place? Humility and the willingness to learn. I can say every single day, no matter how long I'm in the business, I learn something new. The ability to learn all industries and I'm still learning, I'm taking an Amazon Web Services certification course. The willingness to be humble and learn gives you that credibility and you can help move the group forward. I did find early on in my career that unwillingness to learn really hampers your ability to get buy-in and move a team forward. So here's a radical question for you. How are you supposed to know the best way to design a career that suits your unique needs? Few of us were ever exposed to useful advice to help us make good career decisions. In the past, only pro athletes and wealthy CEOs could afford career coaching. Work It Daily was designed to disrupt the career coaching industry. 
we provide 24-7 access to career coaches for less than the cost of a gym membership. Like most professionals, you've likely struggled at some point to find a job or grow your career in a way that makes you feel happy and satisfied. Work It Daily can help you make sense of what to do next in your career. Career planning can feel daunting and lonely, but it doesn't have to be that way. Work It Daily will provide you with the structure and answers you need to take action and get the positive results you're looking for from your efforts. Because we know you have better things to do than stress about your job search or career growth strategy. You'll find us online at workitdaily.com or in your phone app store. That's Work It Daily. W-O-R-K-I-T-D-A-I-L-Y.com. Visit to learn more or sign up today and get started with our career coaches immediately. It's so funny. And something that comes across to me listening to you is I don't get the sense that you come across like you have all the answers or that you want to give the impression that you have all the answers. You know a heck of a lot, but I hear curiosity in your voice. And like you said, humility, which there's a lot more trust in that, right? (laughs) That you're Mm -hmm. probably going to figure out the answer if you don't have it right now. But I do see that executive presence having to be very specific in this situation. Absolutely. And not knowing the answers has been a very big saving grace for me because I'm willing to go find the answer, but I really don't have all the answers. And if there's an expert that I can go to or somebody can find, I'd much rather utilize that expertise and say, hey, here we have an expert. It's like the difference between using my local doctor and following Dr. Anthony Fauci. Yeah, it's so fascinating. All right, you got to tell us more of these stories because people want to hear them. So what's another really memorable situation that we can learn from as you walked us through the steps? I will say 9-11. Okay, talk us through because that's about um, as comparable to this as we can get for a lot of people. The pandemic is worse in many ways, but Mm -hmm. it's better in many ways. So with 9-11, I was an insurance broker. And my specialty was healthcare and hospitals. And a number of the hospitals that I work with, the health systems, were tertiary trauma centers. So my daughter at the time was seven years old. And the firm that I worked at was on the top of two World Trade Center. So as I watched the center burn and then collapse, and I knew meetings that were being held there and people that were there. And a friend actually called his wife from the tower and said, I'm not going to make it out. And we watched the tower collapse. That's how we started our day. And our hospitals had to be prepared for lockdown. So it's going into that. Okay. So what am I saying here? This is my hometown. I have family that work in lower Manhattan. My clients and my hospitals are looking to me for guidance. So you really get down to the What is the first priority? Getting the child from school, getting her into safe care. After that, contacting my clients, making sure they have taken out their disaster recovery. How do they go on lockdown? What have they done with their psych ward? So really walking through the book. And this is where the whole practice piece comes in. Once you practice it and you do it over and over, it becomes second nature. And I use 9-11 as an example because it's very, very personal for me. I still have not been able to visit the site because of friends and colleagues that I lost. But there's a story in 9-11. I'm not sure that anybody's ever watched this, but I'm a maven. I love information. And Morgan Stanley exists today because of one individual. And his name is Rick Riscola. 
Now, Rick was the security guard at the Morgan Stanley business in 1994 when the initial bombing occurred. So he said, not on my watch will anybody ever get injured or lose their life because of a terrorist attack. So from 1994 to 2001, he had all of the Morgan Stanley people in Two World Trade practice, practice, practice. They got so sick of him drove him nuts. There's a great History Channel documentary about him, but he practiced, would have all kinds of drills where, you know, this alarm goes off, ignore everyone except me, evacuate. He saved 2,680 individuals in Morgan Stanley. That was their corporate headquarters. He and one other person were the last to not make it out. And he did not make it out because he went to get the last person. Every person at that company believes that they are alive because Rick had them practice, had them prepared. And while they thought it was silly and extreme, he really had their best interests in their life. So now we have 2,600 and some odd new risk managers out in the world who really understand when you start to project some of these once in a lifetime events, which is what I wrote about in the article, Mm -hmm. they're not once in a lifetime. They're once, whenever, and you can't predict it. It may be once in a lifetime for a six-year-old. It may not be a once in a lifetime for a 50-year-old or an 80-year-old. So we have to treat them as events that can be evaluated and planned for. I mean, we all remember where we were on that day, but to have it hit that close to home in the line of work that you're in, that's fascinating. And I had never heard that story about Rick. That's incredible. I don't know how I missed that one. All right. Well, I need to stop asking you questions because I have a whole audience that wants to ask you questions. Are you ready? So the first one's from Todd. Todd says, how do you get leaders to buy into the cost of catastrophe insurance and not just self-insure? That's a good question. That is a challenge. There's self-insurance, there's captive insurance, and there's commercial insurance. Commercial insurance is designed to make a profit for the insurance company. Self-insurance is designed to keep the money in the bank of the parent company, you know, so that they have use of those funds. The challenge with self-insurance is that you really have to be very well capitalized and you should fund it. So it's almost the same as purchasing insurance. It's just you're keeping the money set aside instead of paying it to an insurance company. The challenge is, and I'll use property insurance as an easy example. If you have a real estate portfolio of $6 billion and one of those buildings is worth $3 billion, can your balance sheet really sustain a $3 billion loss if you haven't funded $3 billion to protect that building? And how long do you want to fund it? So that's where actuaries come in and you really rely on the actuarial folks to help you run models to determine what the likelihood is, what your funding capacity would be, and then determine whether or not you really want to put those dollars aside in your own funds or pay an insurer to take that entire exposure. It's great feedback. My question is this, if you realize that an organization is not looking at risk at all, when you go in and sit down with the executive team for the first time, what are some of the questions you're asking them to get them to start to think about this? Because what you're making clear to me now is you can't go in and just tell them they're not going to listen. Mm you're going to have to really draw it out of them, the realization. So tell me about some of the questioning techniques you'd use in order to get that conversation going. The first thing I do is talk to the board and talk to senior executives 
about their exposure as a board member or a senior executive. Okay. And how comfortable are they that they're not going to get sued for mismanagement? Mm-hmm. Mismanagement, whether it has to do with an employment law issue or a workers' comp issue or a merger and acquisition, that starts the insurance conversation because they say, oh, well, we've never been sued. I said, okay. So then you talk through actual examples of risks that they have and they scratch their head going, oh, I didn't realize that there was a regulatory concern and that the courts have actually weighed on behalf of the insurance company. Let me think about that. So you get those juices flowing and you don't sell them insurance. You just get them to question. And then they call you back and ask, well, Wendy, what if we called off this merger and we have this non-disclosure agreement? What happens next? I said, well, depends on what's, but let's look at the contract. So you have to be able to read contracts, sit down with them, be a trusted advisor and never approach that price point. Because when you start talking about price, you have undermined your efforts of educating the benefits of being risk aware. And then they call you. I'll give you a quick example. I started one conversation with some board members and senior executives, and they said, why are we paying for cyber coverage? And it took about a year to address that question in a very different mechanism. So I started having discussions on recent hacks of health systems, some penalties that those health systems have had to pay what the regulators are doing, how the regulators perceive those health systems, and then change the conversation. And so by the end of that year, the question became, do we have enough? Can we buy some more? So you want them to change their perspective and their look at risk that, yes, there is a risk. Do we want to pay someone to insure or do we want to Mm self-insure? And then help them understand how to self-insure. Well, and that's a follow-up question from Nancy. Nancy's saying, so if you self-insure, don't you have to put aside a lot more money than if you're just paying the premium? What's the difference there? The difference is it depends. There are so many different exposures and coverages. We have what they call long tail and short tail. So if you're self-insuring for property, property or single events, the fire happens, the property goes down, you reinsure, you insure it or you self-insure. For something like medical professional liability, medical malpractice, you really look at how long that what they call tail liability is. So you can get sued 21 years after a birth because of state laws. So it may be cheaper to self-insure that because you could build on that investment over time mm-hmm. and the investments can generate additional income for you. And the insurance may be as much as what you expect a claim to be, mm-hmm. or you can purchase insurance. So a $1 million, what we call bad baby case today could be $18 million in 10 years. That's incredible. And how long does it take when you start to get in there? You're talking about like a year to get them to see the light and come around. But when you start to put these models together for them, how much research goes into it and how long can it take to even be able to present them options? The models are pretty quick. I rely on actuaries every day and they take raw data. So they are dealing with numbers that the finance folks love because it is hard data. It's indisputable. So the actuaries can put it together and it really is a matter of upfront education. 
once you have that first conversation and they start to buy into, ah, we're not being sold a product, we're being educated about how much we want to sleep at night. And then the conversations become much easier. So many times I'll start discussions with, consider me your alarm clock and your sleeping pill. I wake you up to exposures and risks you weren't aware of. And your sleeping pill is you get to rest at night knowing that you have at least identified, addressed, and mitigated it so that your board's happy, your investors are happy, your work team is happy, and you get to sleep. I love that. That's such a great visual, by the way, which leads into a really good question from Jim. Jim says, what are the insurance industry post-pandemic focuses on? Like, what do you think they're going to focus on as a result of the new normal? We're still trying to evaluate that. That is a great question, Jim. Mm. Some of the reinsurers, and those are insurance companies that back up the primary insurance company. So your travelers may have Renaissance as a reinsurer so that travelers isn't taking 100% of that risk and exposure. They honestly don't know. And we honestly don't know because there are so many tentacles that we have found with what's going on with COVID-19. What is challenging the insurance industry is the regulatory environment where regulators are trying to change the policy terms that insurance companies have established over 10, 20, 30 years. And with that, it's something their actuaries haven't priced. Business interruption is the, the number one issue that is holding a lot of companies back. And someone did a study a couple of weeks ago, did a quick rundown of actuarial numbers and found that if every insurance company was required to pay the business interruption limit on the policies in existence, insurers would be gone in three months. Wow. Worldwide. I didn't do a lot of digging into the data analysis, but they were just looking at capacity and how much exposure is out there because people didn't expect that to be something that they would pay for. It's something that was never priced except for Wimbledon. That's amazing. You know, I think we know that this is a dramatic time and it's hard, but there's Mm -hmm. also going to be so many fascinating things that we're going to learn that come out of this, you know, just so many new ways to look at business, whether how we have to insure it or any other aspect. So this has been phenomenal. Fastest 30 minutes ever, by the way, but I want to wrap up by putting it back in your court. I always give our guests the last word. So final thoughts based on all these questions and all we've talked about today, what do you want people to take away the most from this? Enterprise risk management is not insurance. Insurance and insurance is not just plugging a hole. This COVID-19 pandemic has really helped us rewire our brains into how things are connected. Connectivity, people, uh, processes, work, suppliers, supply chain, everything is connected. And so I encourage everyone to think about everything that is happening now is connected and impacts one other person or process downstream and think about how you can make that better or change it so that we don't find ourselves like this in the fall. Fabulous advice. Wendy Knight, thank you so much. Where can people connect with you? What's the easiest way to do that? Easiest way to connect is I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on work at daily. So connect and we can chat and message up. Perfect. Everyone, you go connect with her. She is the real deal. Wendy, this was amazing. And thank you to all our guests who participated today and asked those great questions. Another Executive Insiders in the Books, folks, come back next time. And until then, remember, if you want to win, you got to work it daily. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Executive Insider. If you want to learn more about Work It Daily and how we can help you with your career or job search, visit workitdaily.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you subscribed and left us a five-star review. Don't forget to check out workitdaily.com slash podcast to get access to the resources and links mentioned in today's episode. Those can be found in the show notes. Again, thanks for listening. And I can't wait to share more with you on the next episode of Executive Insider.